tech is not a magic bullet for campaigns. It will not magically win you a race. But if you don't have tech, you will lose. If you're fighting with an arm tied behind your back, your odds are not looking good. So it is really a massive handicap for local organizers if you have to pick and choose with what you can use just because you're a three-person operation and your technical capacity is printing out this spreadsheet from Department of Elections. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Today's guest is Adam Miller. He's the founder of Universe, a company that's building an app aimed at helping local progressive campaigns. Adam previously spent six years as a developer and designer at LinkedIn. We spoke about Adam's career and how he came to entrepreneurship in political software and what his plans are for his company. It's a good conversation. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Adam Miller with Universe. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. So Adam, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, my name is Adam Miller. I spent about eight years in big tech uh, where I was at LinkedIn, um, helping run their design systems team, managing a team of eight to 10, depending on the quarter, to create internal tools for the entire company. But I always had civic side projects. Uh, I was the technical director for the March for Science, their, their inaugural year. I actually met my partner, uh, doing something called the Plainview Project, which was a uh, countrywide case study on police officer misconduct on Facebook, which is exactly what you'd expect. Is that a partner, business partner? Uh, no, partner partner. Uh, partner we live, partner. To, live together now out here in, in San Francisco. Uh, and, uh, and, but these were all side projects during my day job as an engineer and, and product person at LinkedIn. And I was looking for my next thing, uh, my next uh, you know, civic side project to keep my sanity in big tech. And I walked into a local campaign office, saw a sign outside my, uh, outside my dorm in my apartment in downtown SF. And I, uh, I thought local politics, that sounds, that sounds fun. That sounds easy. A nice break from the national stuff <laughs> I've been, you know, focused on for the past, past year or two. I, no, it turns out it is tremendously hard. I discovered exactly how hard it is, um, not just because of the politics of it, but because of the, the, the resourcing and, and capacity and the, the scrappy nature of, of local politics, I, I walked into that campaign office and they, uh, they plopped a packet of paper in front of me and told me to start calling numbers. And meanwhile, we're in San Francisco, like tech capital of the US, and we're still hand dialing numbers. Uh, so I was a little, uh, little shocked to say the least. And I think like any good engineer, I went home uh, that, that weekend and, and went to solve my own problem. Made a little phone bank app and, and brought it into the campaign office the next day. Thought, great, I don't have to hand dial numbers anymore. Uh, it turns out they liked it, uh, and I, I went on to continue helping out with a lot of local campaign tech here in the in the Bay Area, just uh, uh, on the side in my individual capacity. But you know, went from phone banking to text banking to walk list to voter data processing to getting connected with a number of consultants in the area, and it, it expanded out from there uh, to the point where we we started. I believe in 2020, we had representation in every competitive race in San Francisco and expanded to four neighboring counties. I quit my job at LinkedIn to focus on down-ballot campaign tech full-time after that. Not too many people uh, quit jobs at a place like LinkedIn to go into what has often been thought of as a kind of a backwater of political technology, although that's changed uh, over the years, particularly since Howard Dean was running for president in the in the early 2000s and had a lot of people on the show who've 
sort of trace some of that evolution. But I always love to see uh, new people coming into the space who see things differently, who have different data and technology available to build things and who have their heart in the right place. So glad to welcome you in to that. Are you doing this from a partisan standpoint or just more generally low end of the ballot? Yeah, definitely from the, uh, a partisan standpoint. We all get into the industry uh, for a reason. Um, it's actually been one of the best parts of, of arriving into the campaign tech world has been just seeing the passion that people bring with them to, to everything that they work on. I'm no exception. I came in with a, a hope of, of helping, helping Democrats and helping progressives. Uh, and I plan to keep that uh, as a core tenant moving forward. Where did you grow up? What sort of family? Was it a political type of people? <laughs> uh, yeah, very political. My partner and I, who I mentioned before, actually grew up in the same hometown. Went to middle school together in Western Massachusetts, uh, Williamstown, uh, Massachusetts, if you know Williams College. That's, uh, well, my brother went to Williams, so I was really? there for his graduation, yes. Well, so you know it quite well, yeah. Well, no, I, a little bit. It seems like a nice place. <laughs> it is. It's a it's a wonderful place. It's a great place to grow up. I grew up in a politically uh, interested family, but I always um, very called to have a, a good positive change on the world. My family is originally from from Germany, where my grandfather, as a kid, escaped uh, escaped the Holocaust. And I think uh, you know every family story and every family reunion, and even, you know, sitting around the the table at Passover, recounting the the story of. Uh, uh, you know, the, the work that needed to be done after the, the exodus and all that inspired the, the need to always keep fighting um, and specifically always be looking out for the, for the, the little guy, uh, which I think is exactly why local politics kind of gripped me so much to the point where I, I could leave LinkedIn and felt, felt that confidence and bring those skills to, to this arena. My favorite stories in, in local politics have always been those, those underdog stories. One of the people that we had the pleasure of working with was a, uh, she's in East Bay now, now a judge, uh, which is wonderful. It was one woman, her, her wife and her next door neighbor was the, the entire campaign. And they had the daunting task of reaching a million people uh, for their entire audience. It was a countywide race. And they raised $130,000. <laughs> you know, they were, I believe, in their uh, mid-50s, the whole, the whole group. Um, and their technical capacity was just printing out pages of the Excel spreadsheet that they got from the Department of Elections. That was the, the level of sophistication of the, the tech operation when we ran into them. Uh, and we were, we were able to get uh, tools in their hands so that they could actually play with all the, all the bells and whistles that larger campaigns are able to, to play with. And they put it to very good use uh, and squeaked out a victory in the end. It's really that underdog story that I, I really resonate with. You know, you're working with so little so often, but have such a, a passion for the subject area. and uh, it's a it's a place where you could have an outsized impact. Uh, so much attention is paid to federal races, but these are the folks that actually touch our lives every day and are, are having direct impact on the communities. Before we get too much more into your business, I just want to explore your path a little bit more, if you'll forgive me. I understand you went off to RPI, right, Rensselaer? Mm-hmm. Why did you pick that place, and what what did you study and learn there? Yeah, I well, I came in undeclared at RPI originally. I wasn't sure what what direction I wanted to head in specifically at the time. I just knew that I wanted to build things. I've always taken most pride in the stuff that that I was able to 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 create and then get into other people's hands. At RPI, I was a dual major computer science and digital design with a minor in management. Uh, so still couldn't quite choose. So I picked a little bit of everything. Well, it sounds like a really strong background for what you're doing right now. <laughs> what is digital design? Digital design. Um, so any any of the pixels you see on your computer, just the look and feel of that. So Photoshop, user interface design, um, user experience design, human computer interaction, um, the the more uh, uh, touchy feely human side of of the computer world. Um, if engineers are touching the the code and making sure it runs smoothly. Uh, the the designers uh, on the product are the ones who are, are making sure that uh, the the interface between the computer and the person is going well, not just the computer and the data. I, I have a firm called Graphicacy that does kind of the intersection of design and data. And I'm always looking for people who have both the skill to program and the kind of knowledge and aesthetic about how to present information well. So it's hard and you're not in a very large group of people that 
have that combined interest. Yeah. For sure. The team that I that I was with at LinkedIn was also right at that intersection, which seems to be a theme uh, for for the the projects I've worked on. I mentioned it briefly before. It was the the design systems team, um, which practically means we we were the engineering team that worked directly with the design team that made all of the shared look and feel components of everything across LinkedIn, iOS, Android, and web. Uh, so you, when you look at a button on LinkedIn, it looks like a LinkedIn button. It's because we, we made it that way. Um, and that extends to all the visual look and feel of the product, the core theming of it. Uh, and it was our, our job to translate what the designers handed us and craft it in such a way so that we could, we could hand it to another engineer, one of the 10,000 engineers across the company. And it would still look like LinkedIn after they finished integrating it and using it. So it was it was right at that intersection of, of technical use and and design use that had to work for the end user. What was your route from college to LinkedIn? What were the steps that took you there? I actually uh, was recruited right out of college for LinkedIn, believe it or not, and I spent uh, you know I spent seven or eight years there. Like I just talked to someone who was talking about the seven interviews that he went through <laughs> for a for a Silicon Valley firm and and how kind of different that was than the political tech world you recruited were you did you have to jump through a lot of hoops how did how was that process yeah and then and then for the next seven years I was on the other side of that table doing those interviews so it was it was fun to see it from both sides for so long the technical recruiting process um, it's it's a little different for non-engineers but for especially on the engineering side Typical process it changes a little bit different everywhere you go, but you'll you'll get a phone screen initially. You'll then jump on the phone with two other engineers from the company and do a, a digital you know version of the tech interviews. You have to answer a very concrete technical problem, problem solving, and then uh, if they like you enough, they fly you out and bring you on site and sit you in a room for an eight hour day where they give you this gauntlet of uh, of interviews, about forty five minutes each, where somebody will come in ask you a question, you have to go solve it on the whiteboard. Uh, and then at the end, they leave, another person comes in, and it's a whole other topic area where you have to go and like, prove your knowledge. It's very much a trial by fire. Did you feel like you had to get everything right? Or were you able to like, be good at some things and not others? It's one of the biggest misconceptions about the interview process is that you just have to get the right answer, which is not true. Um, when I was running these interviews or helping run some of these interviews after I'd, I'd gotten in, um, when you're on the other side of the desk, what you're looking for is not the right answer. It's for the problem-solving process and the ability to dive into a problem and look at it from a few different angles, uh, and then the ability to collaborate and actually just talk about what you're doing. Um, so I, I actually would not care as much about somebody getting the right answer at the end of the day as uh, it seeming like somebody that I would I would enjoy working through a problem with. People vary greatly in their ability to perform under that kind of pressure in front of an audience as opposed to sort of head down at a desk in a dark room by themselves do you try to understand like how different people come to it in different ways and try to compensate for you know the introvert versus the extrovert or it's one of the reasons why i can i i had so many side projects at linkedin i you know when you're in a large company you get a small part of the problem you get to you get to focus on that small bit, and unless you're you know higher up in the product org, um, you're you're not going to get that holistic holistic view of it. So I I really enjoyed flexing those muscles in my civic tech work. It's been it's been one of the biggest joys finding those fun corner cases for the product, because especially in political tech, um, your your stuff is going to be used by a whole gamut of of, of people with different uh, different tech skills. I joke that. It's not a joke. This actually happens. Um, anything we build uh, at Universe uh, has to pass the grandma test. I literally send it to my grandmother, and if she can't use it easily, then it's not going to production. Yeah, your grandmother's going to get better and better at this, and not. Be as... <laughs> <laughs> I know. I need. To, I need to start getting a few grandmothers on rotation. In the early days of building my own political tech, I did the tech support for it myself. And I could see often the screen of the person using it to facilitate that support, right? And uh, that, that was in the days of modems and PC Anywhere, by the way. What I found fascinating was that often a user would lie to me about what was going on, or so it seemed. Like their perception 
of what was on the screen wasn't always exactly what was on the screen. So if you were just on the phone with them, it could be extremely frustrating. People experience design and, you know, even the labeling of buttons so differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we actually had a case uh, just yesterday exactly like that. If you can't see the, the screen, yes, it's a little hard to communicate with them. But oftentimes, users will phrase something as just dislike of the product. When they actually, if you dig a little deeper and you ask them a couple more questions, uh, they have a very specific reason why they don't like it, which is very fixable. It's a design-minded, user-focused process that I want to keep at the core of everything that we keep building. This person, just yesterday, uh, we have a, a postcarding product that uh, is used by a number of voter registration nonprofits to send send postcards. It shows you the address on the screen. You get to handwrite the address. You hit the next button. You get another address. It's, it's built for handwritten postcards. And one one person in the in the chat for this particular session just said, uh, I like the old way better. Can we go back to the PDFs? And it wasn't until we had a, a side conversation with them uh, where we realized this, this person um, is uh, older and can't handwrite anything. They're, they just they can barely sign their own name, but they still want to be engaged in the, the civic process. They want they want to you know continue to be an activist and not be blocked out. Uh, and so what they used to do was copy and paste addresses from the PDFs into a label printer, uh, where they could then um, you know print out the label, print out their message, and then sign their name at the bottom. With our tool, with with the design choices that we had made, that was that wasn't really possible anymore. But it's such an easy fix um, to to help support that use case and to make the entire process more inclusive, uh, that if, if we hadn't taken the time to actually get to know the user complaint uh, and figure out why, uh, like the product would be worse off for it. Eight years almost at LinkedIn, how would you characterize the other kinds of learning that you picked up there that are relevant to kind of being an entrepreneur in the political tech space now? Yeah, I was, I was shocked at how much carried over at a big company, there's just as much hardcore engineering as there is uh, internal, I don't want to say politics, uh, internal personality uh, navigation. <laughs> Everything was about trying to convince, um, convince other people of, of the, the correct solution or to, to pitch your concept in a way that brought other folks in, the, in your department onto your side or to take internal products on a roadshow and like, show it to the rest of the company and start start selling it as something that, that they might want to use. I was pleasantly surprised at the number of soft skills I had to flex in helping run this this internal team at LinkedIn. And those carried over one-to-one -one in the both the entrepreneurship scene and the uh, the political worlds as well. Because everywhere you go, you have to um, very intentionally arrive with humility and make sure that um, you're actually solving a problem that people have. I feel like there's often a knee-jerk reaction in the organizing community to, to technical workers who come in. We're trying to, to give something that will replace you, or, or we're trying to uh, you know, make your jobs obsolete, or, or, or we think we know how to do your job better. And that's just distinctly not true. I openly admit I'm, I'm fairly fresh to the organizing scene. And there is stuff that organizers and consultants know that I will never uh, you know, have, have in my brain at, the, at, at my disposal. But what I can do is I can make you not want to throw your laptop out the window. I can help you move faster at what you do, but it's still organizer's expertise that needs to be brought to the forefront um, and needs to guide how the product is developed as well. The users aren't just the volunteers who are consuming it who need to have a good experience. It's also the organizers who need to be able to use that knowledge that they've gained and those skills that they have and this, this intimate relationship with their local communities and actually put it into effect in a way that uh, does help them move faster and not fight against them. You also mentioned this plain view project, which you said you met the partner that you have referred to twice. Who is this partner and what was the plain view project? <laughs> so my, my partner is an amazing, amazing woman named Emily Baker White. She and I, like I mentioned, went to middle school and high school together back in Western Massachusetts. Um, I was her little brother's friend and, uh, you know, like most older sisters of your friends, you didn't, you know, associate with them that much. So she was the, uh, she was the older sister. We, she, she graduated. I graduated. We went our separate ways. She then went off to become very cool. Um, uh, originally classically trained in viola, went to Harvard Law School, uh, and then into the public defender's office in Philadelphia, where she discovered that one of the arresting officers for one of her cases uh, did not know how Facebook privacy settings worked. 
uh, and was posting some very um, racist, Islamophobic, violence-glorifying, horrendous stuff publicly on Facebook, uh, some of which was admissible in court as evidence of bias. And she wondered how much more content like that was out there. So uh, she found a little bit of funding, uh, and her and a friend started screenshotting uh, offensive bits of content uh, for the Philadelphia Police Department, just what they could find. And she reached out to me around Thanksgiving, four years ago now? Yeah, four years ago now, you know, saying, Adam, I, I have a, we haven't talked in a decade. I've had a, a, I have a cool project I'm working on. Uh, will you sign this NDA and contract? And can you make a website? <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> can I make a website? That's my day job. What do you want? We go on to expand the project to eight other jurisdictions uh, or across the US. I helped her scale it up from uh, just Philadelphia to eight different jurisdictions across the US, uh, where we made a tool that pointed out a public Facebook profile. It auto expands the comment threads, auto redacts people it doesn't recognize, and takes a screenshot of every public post on that profile uh, and loaded that up into a tool we affectionately called uh, Cop Tinder. Emily and I helped manage a, a team of 14 contract workers to sift through uh, nearly a million public Facebook posts from officers across these eight jurisdictions, whittling it down to the uh, six to 8,000 bits of content. The question we were hoping to raise was, uh, can this affect public trust in policing? And that was the criteria. Uh, we published it for uh, the, the world to, to see and ask that same question. What was the result of all that publishing? Anything change? Uh, yes, it had quite a, quite a good splash. It launched with a feature in, in BuzzFeed News um, and was quickly picked up by uh, the New York Times the next day, Washington Post, CNN, ABC. Emily did the whole media uh, gambit. We knew we made it when The Daily Show did a, did a bit on the Plainview Project. That, awesome. <laughs> that's, how we, that's how we knew we made it, made it to the big time. And it had a really good impact. Uh, and kudos to the departments for responding uh, to this as well. They took it very seriously. Uh, 72 were placed on desk duty in Philadelphia pending investigation. And I believe ultimately 13 to 15 were fired in Philadelphia. Uh, St. Louis, uh, 22 were placed on what's called a Brady's list, which is you know, do not call to testify. So again, basically desk duty for the rest of their careers uh, and so on and so forth. So the project did have an impact on the communities where we entered. And I, I think it did help to shift the conversation about who it is exactly we and what type of culture do we want to create for, for the people who are policing our streets. Does it continue? It was a one and done uh, uh, project. Uh, it, it had its moment in the sun, but I, I think it certainly did kickstart that conversation. Uh, it did have a bit of a renaissance during the Black Lives Matter protests of, of the last year. It's been put on ice. It is still publicly available, plainviewproject.org, if you want to go take a peek. Uh, content warning, uh, police violence. So go in, go in with awareness. So you've sort of given me a sense of this, but what would you say is the founding story for... Uh, your company, which is it called Universe? It is called Universe. Yep. It's very much about equity and, and access. Uh, I was, you know, when I walked into that campaign office here in, in San Francisco, like I said, I was a little bit surprised about the state of down ballot organizing, even here in SF. I went to a, a number of political tech conferences before I, I jumped ship to do this full time just to verify that this is not. A distinctly local phenomenon in San Francisco or in the Bay Area, but uh, from from everything I was able to glean, it, it seems like we have been underinvesting in down ballot politics for a very long time. And if we want to have any hope of maintaining or gaining more control over the next decade, we need to do essentially what the Republicans did during the Obama years and and actually give our folks down ballot uh, the resources they need to win and to be the the best versions of the uh, of themselves as as organizers at that local level. Republicans have, have taken this very concerted and almost corporate-like approach to down-ballot races to the point where this last cycle, I, I don't believe we took back a single state house that we had our eyes on. Uh, throughout the Obama years, I, I believe it was over a thousand down-ballot um, seats that we lost. And even then, 70% of down-ballot races are uncontested. Like We're just not putting up that fight at the local level uh, or giving people the tools that they necessarily need to win. I am not up to date on what Republicans are providing as far as technology down ballot. Have you looked into that? They have a kind of a, a shadow version of the, the democratic tech industry, uh, but it does appear to be a little bit more consolidated. There's only, uh, you know, there's the Republican data trust, um, 
which you're able to go and, and get your data from, which we now, uh, you know, a few years down the road, have a corollary on the Democratic side. Um, but I think one of the major uh, investments that they've made down ballot are is in independent expenditures and just exactly how much attention is paid to these down ballot races and how much support is given from the party proper uh, or from from major Republican donors on down ballot races. Um, Americans for Prosperity, the Koch brothers organization, for the past eight years has really been getting their fingers dirty or their hands dirty in uh, in these down ballot races. They, there's a great story, a great uh, story about how much effort they put into a mayor's race in I believe, Coralville, Iowa, a while back. Does that go to tech tools beyond the data? Does that go to like an, an analog to what you're building? Yes, it, it does. It goes to uh, it goes to tech tooling. It goes to fields, you know, field organizers on the ground. It goes to getting that expertise in local organizers' hands, uh, and it goes to training, um, and it goes to building that culture of of down ballot organizing in a more centralized way. And Republicans, I believe, see it. It's less of a, a donation when large donors contribute, and it's more of an investment. Um, like they, they see the return on investment. So they're excited to, to make sure that local organizers have that access because they're going to they're gonna see those returns in a very real way. Um, they, uh, there's a great quote, <laughs> a horrible quote, but a great quote from the uh, Americans for Prosperity folks. While most organizers focus on short bursts of activity uh, in and around election cycles, AFP in, is investing in creating a continued culture of freedom year after year. We fight local issue battles because they result in good policy outcomes. And it's a good strategy to identify uh, and culture build with future politicians who can take state office and federal office later. So they very much see it as this pipeline to invest in. You could find that quote from 20 zillion organizations on our side as well. But so, I mean, both whether or not either side is doing it as effectively as they'd like to, I, I, that I, I'm not sure anyone has fully evaluated, but I, but I take your point. From what I've seen, at least, um, there's been a connection to resources that right-wing operatives are able to make that Democrats seem to leave a little bit more to trickle-down tech uh, from presidential and Senate races. The main innovation in the Democratic side comes from uh, investment by presidential races, and then the companies that spin out of them uh, are, are there for down-ballot races to start using if they can pick them up and make them work. Have you looked at the technology that is used for congressional and senatorial and presidential? And why would you say it's not a good fit uh, for down-ballot races? Which I think you're probably right, but why would you say that? Well, it's for a number of reasons. First and foremost, the, the market itself is not set up to support down-ballot races. Mind you, the progressive, democratic, uh, political campaign tech market. Uh, Higher Ground Labs has uh, a group that invests in um, uh, progressive campaign tech, uh, produces a graphic every year of the, the uh, campaign tech landscape for progressives. And it's, uh, it's a lot of boxes and a lot of logos. Um, I'd encourage you to go to go look it up if you haven't seen it. It is it is enlightening just to see the, the sheer breadth of the space. And for somebody with the funds to to prop up an internal tech uh, company, basically inside of your campaign, it it can serve you pretty well if you have the technical expertise to use it. But you have to pick a logo from almost every single box on that map, uh, and you have to pay the subscription cost in order to use that tool as well. Uh, and on top of that, you need to have the technical talent inside of your organization to be able to wire all these tools together and shuttle data back and forth and keep the wheels on throughout the campaign. Uh, and if you either can't afford eight to 20 different subscription costs, depending on the type of tech operation you want to wire together, uh, or you don't have either somebody on staff or a technical volunteer like, like me who walks in the door and says, how can I help? You're not going to be functioning as well as you, you need to be. Um, tech is not a magic bullet for campaigns. It will not magically win you a race. But if you don't have tech, you will lose. If you're fighting with an arm tied behind your back, your odds are not looking good. So it is really a massive handicap for local organizers if you have to pick and choose with what you can use just because you're a three-person operation and your technical capacity is printing out this spreadsheet from Department of Elections. So tell me how you went about building a company. You, you seem to indicate that you, you know, found a need and then you started to build a series of tools to solve that for your your down ballot campaigns. How, how did you go about building this into an enterprise? Yeah, I'm really proud 
to be, I think, one of the few tools in the space that really started hyperlocal and started by being built in local campaign offices. Uh, so it, it started as a, as a side project for me at LinkedIn. I was volunteering with local campaigns here in San Francisco and um, fixing needs as I ran into them. Something that I was amazed by was, was how much leverage I was able to bring to the organization. With a small tool, with a small change to process, with a little bit of efficiency, uh, it really unlocks a whole new level of, of local organizing for a lot of these folks. Part of what I think I brought to the table at the time was you know, learnings from LinkedIn to never do anything twice and try and see how you can kind of copy paste it as much as possible and, and, and uh, amplify those benefits. Um, I would hope anyone in tech would have those, those core, core tenants. But because of that and because of the relationships we made here, here locally, um, it was it kind of spread like wildfire. It was incredibly validating to see that need driving growth just here, here in the Bay. Um, and so it started with that kind of product and, and person-centric approach, uh, building in the campaign offices, seeing what the need actually was, trying to get at the core of what the problem was, and then delivering it in a way that uh, you don't really have to learn anything new to pick up and go. It should be easy for anyone of any skill level to get going, just like to our earlier conversation. Uh, so many people coming from so many different backgrounds have to interact with this. Did you build it sort of for for phones or for a browser? What sort of technology lies underneath it and how does it hit the world? Uh, so there are people who are coming at it from so many different channels. Um, you have folks who, who enjoy uh, calling or texting from their laptops. You have folks who enjoy calling or texting from their phones. You have folks who want to walk with paper lists instead of the, the digital lists. And so... Uh, a very fun technical challenge was keeping it as multi-channel as possible, but always filtering it back to the same same central dashboard and the same central um, core core place where the uh, the admins will be interfacing with the technology. So the application itself uh, actually installs on organizer laptops because every single choice we've made has been to help keep our costs down. Downballot is such a low margin part of the industry that uh, every little expense um, helps and helps us have more play with uh, with our pricing models. So we can actually make it affordable for even the smallest candidates. Uh, so we keep our hosting costs down with a bunch of clever technical choices. Uh, and all of the tools are intended for uh, the casual local volunteer. Um, you asked what uh, the the tools currently made for, for Senate and presidential races are, are sometimes lacking in. And it's uh, a focus on this this hyper local, hyper casual volunteer who maybe just walked in or came because a friend dragged them, and if they encounter any friction, whether it's bad design, or downloading an app, or making an account, or God forbid signing in, if they encounter any friction in that early volunteer part of the process, you're not going to see them again. But aren't you indicating that they do have to download the tool onto their laptop? Isn't that some friction? So for for us for for Universe, when you you the organizers themselves the the admins, the campaign manager, the field manager, they do download a tool. Um, and I equate it to like, you know, you're going to work at a company, you're going to download Slack. You're going to download, you know, Microsoft Teams. You're going to have your email client. Like, this is your job. Asking the organizer, asking the the administrator, or the, uh, the campaign manager, uh, or folks employed by the campaign, it's, it's not a lot to ask to have them go download a tool. In fact, they, they seem to enjoy it because it gives them a better experience often than just in the browser. Uh, for the volunteers... Uh, we've kept everything on the web. They receive a text message to their phone or an email to uh, to their email accounts, and with just one click, uh, they can get uh, get going with their their volunteer work. So they don't have to download anything; it pops open right away, uh, and they can just get right to what they came here to do, which is call numbers or text voters or write postcards or what have you. I assume the data resides in the cloud, though to be accessed by anybody from anywhere. Yes, the data is all in the cloud, all the apps are wired together. In fact, um, the experience for a lot of the volunteer apps as well is, is live updating. So if you're, for instance, on a walk with a, with a partner and you're taking two sides of the street, you'll see each other's progress as you go on the app. Uh, we try and bring all the, uh, all the modern amenities you'd expect. What is it built in? What's sort of the tech stack? Uh, so the desktop app itself is an Electron app. It's all web tech at the end of the day. Uh, so desktop app is an Electron app. Uh, is, I don't know how granular you want me to get with the technology. It uses Preact for front-end uh, components. Most of the front-end framework stuff is hand-built. 
because we want that experience to be nice and clean. Uh, behind the scenes, it's all on Google services. Uh, so Firebase uh, for, for data uh, and uh, Google Cloud Functions for, for most of the cloud activity going on. It sounds like you're providing access to VoterFile. Are you doing that through a voter file vendor that processes it? Or are you having uh, each campaign load their own? Or how are you handling that issue? So I have been to a number of, of conferences, both in person and on the web now, where there's been folks who, there's been consultants who work with local organizers. And there's been some local organizers themselves on these conferences. And the, the conversation inevitably becomes really complex and you start talking about, well, what type of, uh, you know, person level scoring are you including in your data file? And what was your, your phone number purchase of pen for this, you know, for this particular race? And meanwhile, these, these organizers are shocked. These, these, they're, they're like, why are we talking about this? My clients can't even get access to data. There's a massive access issue to data as you get further and further down ballot, whether it's just because of price uh, or, or because you're, you're in a nonpartisan race and, and you, you can't necessarily get it from, from the party proper uh, or just a lack of connections um, or process breakdown. Folks are, are often requesting data themselves uh, from Department of Elections, like, like my East Bay candidate, and printing it out for themselves to use. So we, we have a pretty, uh, a pretty slick setup, a good pipeline for just processing raw voter data files. Um, we can bring a county online in, in a day or so if we have the data. Um, and so in counties where we support it, uh, we, we do offer uh, the, just the basic voter data file out of the box. Um, mind you, we, uh, we only really cross-reference it with the, uh, the assessor's file. If we have it, um, you get voting history, but we don't do individual person-level scoring. We don't do phone number purchases or email purchases. So it is really just that basic sanitized file. Um, so for folks who can afford it and who have the access or the want of it, I, I do encourage them to go to uh, more uh, uh, premium data vendors uh, to get the data, which we we do play nicely with. Um, you can import your lists uh, in a fairly straightforward way into the application. But for folks who who are running into those access issues, again, trying to make sure that this is accessible for as many down ballot folks as possible, uh, and make sure that we can go and actually contest every race, uh, the basic sanitized voter file is is available out of the box in supported counties. And if you're in a county that we don't yet support for that, uh, if you go and purchase the voter data file, uh, we will write the adapter to be able to import it in for you. Uh, so with the with the intent of bringing your county online once we get a good enough critical mass of candidates running there. I think that makes some sense on the campaign where you're taking them from no tool to a significant tool that's that's providing a lot of things for them. Where the system has uh, at least theoretically been set up on the Democratic side in the past is, uh, and, and, and actually in, in nonpartisan vendors as well, like Nation Builder built their own voter file so they could provide uh, a standardized connection across all their campaigns. And Van, you know, working with the Democratic Party, houses a voter file that everyone can share. And, and, and the theory being, you know, all those candidates together keeping the data clean. Uh, do you think that, you know, as you evolve as a company that you'll, you'll want to think about how do we integrate into the existing data ecosystem or are you mostly right now thinking about, Hey, we got to just deliver something clean to a small campaign. Uh, the answer is yes. And we're already exploring those options. I want universe to be a good data citizen here as we move forward. Uh, hogging data in this space, kind of probably contrary to almost every other technical space in, in the tech industry. Uh, hogging data here does not help us. Uh, it's, it's, it really should, uh, can and should be uh, housed and shared uh, by the, the movement as a whole and by the party. I hope to be the capillaries for, for down ballot races and help deliver data down to where it's needed. And we'll be working with a lot of local races where there's probably not a lot of insight yet into how canvassing activity is going on there. So I do want to deliver that data back up uh, where we can. Can you explain the breadth of the different applications that you're, that are currently available and give a sense of what else you're hoping to add as you go forward? Yeah, happily. Um, so we, as I alluded in the, before in the story, we started out with just the, the phone bank app uh, because it scratched my itch. I, I didn't have to hand dial numbers, but we quickly expanded uh, just from phone banking, uh, which 
we, we allow to use a, a voice over IP number for dialing or just a volunteer's phone number if you don't want to pay per minute. We expanded pretty quickly into, into peer-to-peer texting. We have a walklist product, which supports both digital lists on your phone, which will live sync back to the application. Uh, but we also have a, a printed list product, um, which I'm very excited for this feature. We're launching this end of quarter. You'll be able to take a photo of the printed walklist, text it to the campaign phone number, and we'll automatically read in the data for you. So no more data entry. Really excited for that. Uh, we have a postcarding product, which is largely just to deliver uh, addresses to, to your writers as, as needed. Um, I was, I think, surprised at how many nonprofits are still using Google Spreadsheets to deliver lists of addresses for folks to handwrite cards to. Um, and we're, we're currently exploring um, integrations with uh, postcard printing providers to make this workflow even easier. We do have in-app uh, list cutting, uh, and we have a, a CRM product which allows you to uh, create up these new voter outreaches uh, and see statistics as they come in and start making new lists and spin them up as you need. Uh, and also has baked into it a lot of voter analytics. So you can kind of get a high-level overview of the, the universe you're working with uh, and the, the folks you'll be targeting. Um, also baked in is a good amount of volunteer management. Uh, so you're able to uh, onboard new volunteers. Volunteers are able to join your campaign by uh, text message for a specific outreach or just in general if they want to sign up. But uh, also volunteer sign-up pages uh, and fairly soon uh, baked in volunteer training pipelines, which I'm excited for, and mass communications to volunteers. And by, by end of quarter, we'll have baked in uh, broadcast text messaging. Uh, so people who have subscribed to your uh, campaign um, and specifically volunteers that you might want to turn out, you'll be able to mass communicate to them. Uh, and we'll be launching our beta campaign website platform where you'll be able to either pick a theme off the shelf or commission us to make a one-off. Or if you have you know, somebody who likes design work on the side, they'll be able to make their own. Uh, we'll be launching that uh, campaign website platform by end of quarter as well. That will include, uh, again, the volunteer sign-up pages, uh, petitions, uh, just basic issues pages and endorsements, as well as uh, mailing list sign-up, where we'll be uh, launching bulk email. We're still on track to deliver that for end of quarter as well. So you can Nix your $200 a month MailChimp subscription and uh, have it integrated with your, your main CRM as, as part of that. So do you do that uh, blast email in-house or do you, do you under the covers integrate with an existing? So we use Amazon SES under the hood to send. All of the tools that I just mentioned, by the way, we, um, our pricing model is, is, is again, with, uh, with down-ballot folks in mind. Um, we don't charge you based on universe size. We don't charge you based on uh, number of seats in the campaign. We you know, just ask how many folks are either employed by your organization or what's your estimate for how much you're going to be taking in that cycle. And we have a scaling subscription cost based on that. But then each of the outreach tools, uh, on top of that, we just pass through the, our costs for activity on top of that subscription. You're in control of uh, your emailing uh, budget line item for that, that quarter or how much you're going to spend on texting. Uh, and I, I challenge you to find, find cheaper in the market because it is, again, just passed through for what we pay wholesale. You've been saying we when you refer to the company. Who is it beyond you? Uh, so we are a team of four now. Myself, two amazing uh, engineers who came on from the uh, 2020 general cycle. Uh, they were volunteers for a campaign. Actually, uh, this seems to be a recurring story. <laughs> they were volunteers for the campaign. You've got a lot of technical volunteers walking in the door and asking, how can I help? And a lot of local campaigns don't know what to do with that resource. And so the folks I've been uh, working with here in the Bay have just said, have you met Adam? Um, so over the course of 2020, I, I had um, eight to 10 volunteers come through the door and Ruth and Erica were the two that stuck. So they were at Pinterest and Credit Karma before jumping ship to focus on this full time. But they enjoyed the process of, of using our volunteer tools and the campaigns that they were working with uh, so much that they decided this is what they wanted to, to invest their, their time in. Uh, so uh, we have those, those two, en- uh, two engineers on the team, uh, as well as a, uh, a campaign manager who helped manage a campaign out in Berkeley, but also in a past life was an enterprise designer and product person in the tech industry, does uh, contract work now as a freelancer, uh, who also decided that Universe was uh, such a cool resource uh, well, that she was using on her campaign that she wanted to come and help uh, help us out as we keep building out our, our fundraising features for Q1 of next year. So she's also actively working on the product. How do you think about the competition? Do you think about the competition being 
like Google spreadsheets? Do you think about the competition being other of the many firms on that HGL layout that you referenced? Do you think about, you know, it being generic CRMs that can be customized? How, how do you think about what you face out there uh, as you grow? So that's something amazing about the down ballot campaign industry. Uh, so often our competition is nothing. We have so many candidates that are either just printing out their spreadsheets that they get from Department of Elections or managing things in Google spreadsheets uh, or, or working with an off-the-shelf CRM that's really not made for uh, campaign work. That's really the sector of the market that I'm, I'm focused on first, uh, is, is the people who have been left behind by the current offerings. You'd have to twist my arm to, to work on a presidential or work on a Senate race. Like That is not who we're here to help. We're here to help build up that local groundswell. Have you like thought out about how the math works on this? One of the real challenges for people on the down ballot, people have taken swings for over two decades, maybe three that I'm aware of to go after the, the sort of long tail of this market and where they've foundered sometimes has just been in, in sort of what you can charge versus what does it take to support and deliver sufficiently good product, keep it updated, staff, et cetera. Have you looked at the math? How many campaigns do you need to make a go of this? Or how are you thinking about that? I, I would be an uh, irresponsible founder and, and uh, an idiot for jumping ship from LinkedIn if I hadn't looked at the unit economics here. Um, yeah, that is the, the biggest criticism of the down ballot industry. And, and I think why a lot of people say this, this will never work. But from the get go, uh, we have worked to keep our operational expenses as low as possible. If you want to get really nerdy about it, I, I, could, I could get into the, the nitty gritty technical details of, of why any given client that we spin up only costs us on average $5 a month to keep online, no matter what their size is. Uh, but every technical choice we've made has been to keep our operating costs low. And right now, I'm exploring ways to to keep our um, uh, to really drive drive growth in in the industry and and our growth in the market uh, in a way that also won't break the bank. You can't approach this as your typical SaaS, you know, software as a service sales operation. Enterprise sales don't work down ballot. You really need to build a culture of organizing and actually invest in local organizers and make sure that you're part of that process if you're going to want to uh, build that support. That's the approach that we'll be taking as we continue expanding uh, outside of the Bay. And then to reduce our support costs as much as possible, I think it comes back around to, to where you started this conversation with, with product and just making sure that the tools that people are using do what they need to do, explain how to use them easily, are intuitive to pick up and use. At LinkedIn, you know, the small team of, of folks I was managing uh, was expected to support 10,000 engineers who all were on the internal Slack channels with us. So we were tracking support costs religiously there. Every sprint, we were working to bring our support costs down um, just by virtue of documentation, documenting religiously, and through uh, product design and, and interfaces that, that helped, uh, helped serve that need. So we'll, we're, we'll be taking the same approach with all the down ballot tooling that we're making as well. Uh, so yes, I'll be keeping an eagle eye on uh, both operational costs and support costs as we keep growing out. We do have a concrete break-even number with our estimated um, you know, team size and growth plans. We need six to 800 concurrent campaigns, average seven-month contract in order to keep this, keep this afloat and hit break-even. Uh, so with our, with our current, not yeah. that many. And, and it's all because we're keeping our costs low and going to be keeping our support costs low uh, as well. Did you raise money for this? I know typically HGL puts in some money. Have you raised money otherwise? Yep. Uh, so HGL uh, is, we are a member of HGL's 2021 cohort, and they have, they have put money in uh, to the company. Uh, we're also about halfway through raising an 800K seed round. Uh, expect to close that, close that soon. So. One of the sort of opportunities of building something in the long tail of a market is that it's typically not that difficult to move up after creating a, you know, what is probably a superior holistic product 
with maybe less complicated interface and uh, maybe feature set because you can add to the feature set and people can really appreciate the holistic nature of things. Do you think in the long run that, you know, you got a person running for state house or city council, they're going to want to take this when they run for Congress or statewide or something like that. That seems like a natural thing that might happen. The referral networks in in the campaign tech market are so strong. It's it's again, it's the reason why even back when it was just me, we were able to expand quickly here in the Bay Area. The races are short. You're you know seven months, ten months or something on a on a race, and then it's over and everybody dissipates. And a lot of folks who normally look at the market see that and say, "Oh, you have a contract uh, length cap there. What are you what are you going to do?" Well, those people go off and work on other campaigns. These people go to you know back to their their full time jobs at their nonprofit or their union, which also does organizing like activities. Folks follow their candidates into into office and start uh, doing needing to do constituent outreach, uh, which is just organizing by another name. Because uh, if our dear president of the last four years taught us anything, it's that you can never stop campaigning even once you're in office. So I'm excited for that use case of of following a candidate from the campaign trail into office and you know toggle a toggle. And, and all of a sudden, it becomes constituent outreach instead of campaign work. And of course, they go off to larger organizations and larger campaigns. I always want to stay true to the local organizing use case. We can never lose sight of that because it is such a foundational part of the industry and something that's been ignored for, for so long. But uh, I, I'd be interested to see uh, how far we can, we can scale up um, in the market as we keep following our candidates up, up ballot. Makes sense as an answer. Yeah, because I also built campaign software, I could talk to you all day about this and I, I, I want to uh, respect your time. But is there a question I didn't ask that you wish I had? I would have loved to talk a little more about the folks who I think have, a, have growth models right in this industry. The folks who, who have been able to tackle the long tail. And those are the, the candidate and organizer training programs. You said it yourself, and it's a common critique of down ballot that it's so hard but the folks who have gotten that market penetration in the long tail of the market here uh, have been groups like Run for Something or Emerge or Organizer Core. They're the ones who have actually had been able to get traction at the local level. Um, and I, I think that model, uh, especially for like, down ballot, democratic and progressive politics, is going to become more and more common for, for tech organizations as well. Um, you know, like I said before, you cannot treat this as a, an enterprise sales market. It's more like growing a social network. You need buy-in from folks at the local level and you build that community, which is, which is what these groups are, are very, very good at doing. I'm hoping we can see more of that direct investment in local communities because uh, it, is, it is very much needed. Adam, it's um, been an honor talking to you. It's been a pleasure. That was Adam Miller. Adam is at universe.app. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.